All right, welcome back to our study on the biblical woman, meaning we're looking at woman through the lens of what God has revealed about woman in Scripture. And we're doing uh, mostly uh, focusing on five aspects, and those five aspects are the uh, woman defined, the woman designed, the woman fallen, the woman redeemed, and the woman glorified. Now, in our very first study, the woman defined, the essence of that study, what we concluded was that because, like man, because the woman was created by God, he and he alone has exclusive rights to define who she is, what she's all about. Um, you know, the world that we live in, of course, would want to change that definition and modify it in whatever way currently suits the society and the culture surrounding us. But God's definition has never changed because he had a very specific intention and purpose in his heart and in his mind when he created her. And so his definition from the beginning and throughout what is revealed in Scripture remains uh, as um, important to understand today as it did when he first created her. Then the second aspect, which we covered in two studies, we split it into two studies, is the woman designed by God. And we identified four aspects of that, two of which, two of those aspects had to do with her relationship to God, and two had to do with her relationship to her husband. So uh, what we saw was in the relationship to God, uh, the design of woman was primarily and first above all other things. She was designed to bear God's image exactly as the man is designed to bear God's image. And then secondarily to that, she was designed in her relationship with God to have dominion over God's creation alongside man who is also designed to have dominion over God's creation. Then the second two aspects were in relationship. These we saw, uh, the first two, of course, were revealed in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, we looked at uh, God's design for the woman in relationship to her husband. And the two aspects there was she was designed to be a companion to her husband. And we developed uh, various sub parts of that, what it truly means to be a, a companion. Um, then also in terms of her activity uh, in this world in relationship to her husband, she is designed to be a helper to her husband. Helper is the same word we saw that the Lord himself uses to define his own activity in relationship to his followers and the Holy Spirit's activity in relationship to uh, true believers, meaning to be a helper is a, a truly a, a high and heavenly calling. And it has to do with coming alongside, recognizing the importance of another's calling and assignment, and then finding a way to fit with that assignment in a truly beneficial way. All right, so that brings us up to, we're right in the middle of our outline. We're in the third section or the third segment of our study, and that is the woman fallen the idea here, of course, is we're still in the Garden of Eden. We're still in the, the circumstances of the beginning of history in our consideration of how the beginning of history continues to affect history from that point forward and will continue to affect history until the end of history as we know it, which is the return of the Lord and the second coming of Christ. So the principles we're going to be considering today are, are really uh, principles that people don't really like to pay attention to. They're, they're not the most enjoyable things to study. Um, it's the bad news, essentially, of what has happened in history to change history for the worse. And uh, it's, not a, uh, it's not a change that's, that's uh, irreconcilable or unresolvable. God has, of course, made the first and greatest effort to uh, change what had happened to ruin history as we know it uh, in the redeeming work of Christ. And that's going to be the focal point of our study next time, Lord willing. But it is important for us to, before we study the principles of redemption, 
uh, as they affect us as individual people is to really make sure we understand the principles of the fall because um, the the whole point of redemption is a repair work in relationship to the fall. If we don't understand the fall properly, we won't understand redemption properly and we'll miss the deeper purposes of what the Lord is working to accomplish in us. So the question we're starting with in this study is how did the fall affect the original design of the woman? Now we've studied these, these two aspects, definition and design. The fall did not affect the definition of woman at all, zero, meaning God's original intention and purpose as it is represented in the definition remains the same. There's no change. The, the fact that sin entered into the world doesn't change God's idea, doesn't change God's purpose, doesn't change God's intention. But it does have a, a huge effect and impact on the design. So God, with this definition in mind and in heart, set about the work of creating man and woman. And he created both beautifully and perfectly. And then sin entered into the world. We're not going to go back and look at all of the the details of that, but we are going to look at uh, three core principles in relationship to that this morning. And we're going to consider how did the events of the fall affect that design and to what extent did that, how, how deep did that effect go, that impact of the fall go? So, When we're considering the fall, and this is something maybe you've never thought of quite from this perspective before, but I want to introduce it to you this morning. When we consider the fall, there's two aspects of the fall that are important to understand. Number one, the fall is it applies to everybody, all of humanity, Um, man, woman, old, young, everybody that, that takes breath in this world has been deeply impacted and affected by the fall. And those principles are fully described throughout Scripture from beginning to end, and we're given all kinds of detail about that. For instance, let me just give you some key uh, concepts or some key words and phrases to describe, as Scripture does, the result for all humanity. Whether you're a man or a woman doesn't matter. This is true of all of us because we have been impacted by the fall. Number one, we're described biblically as being spiritually dead. Probably the most difficult concept to fully grasp. What, what does that mean that I'm spiritually dead? You know, our bodies are alive. We're, we're functioning in this world. Uh, people think they're alive. They're, they're, uh, they're certainly completely unaware that there is something at a deeper level, at a spiritual level going on inside of them that God describes as and defines as death. So you have a biological life principle in everyone that's alive in this world, and you have a spiritual death principle that's going on at a deeper level, a hidden level, an invisible level in their hearts. And both of those things are combined. So they're spiritually dead. They're sinful, obviously, uh, not defined at, there's not a single one in this world apart from Christ, apart from the saving and redeeming work of Christ, that's described as a righteous person. Um, there is, not, as, as the book of Romans tells us, there is none righteous, no, not one. So everybody is redefined because of the fall as sinful. We're spiritually blind, meaning that while we have physical eyes to be able to perceive, or most of us do, to perceive the world around us, um, spiritually speaking, our heart is also evaluating the world around us. We're not just evaluating the world in what we call sight in a biological way. We're evaluating the world in a spiritual way. The biological way may be seeing the world around us accurately. Like I can, I can look over there and I can see that plant and I can identify it as a plant. I can see that it's green. I can see the dimensions of it. So I'm accurately um, identifying what's going on with that plant. But spiritually, I may have a complete lack of understanding about what the plant means and what the plant signifies to me, which is, of course, that how did it get here? What is its purpose in this world? Who created it? Why does it exist? 
So we are spiritually dead, we're spiritually sinful, we're spiritually blind. Uh, The scripture also describes us as God-haters, meaning that our starting point in this world, spiritually speaking, is that we are disconnected from God, and not just disconnected, like in relationship, I'm not close to him, but I actually have a starting point of spiritual opposition to him in my heart. Now, there are all kinds of psychological reasons that can be identified as to why that is true, and the scripture details those for us. But understand that everybody, no matter what they think, there are many that say, you know what, I I love God in my heart, but if they're not following him, if they're not obeying him, if they're not honoring him in the way that he calls upon human beings to honor him, if they're not worshiping him as they should, if they're not serving him as they should, they are actually defined by God as God-haters. And of course, the parallel to that is they're self-lovers. So they hate God on one hand, and they actually love themselves on the other. Uh, and, And as a result, they are serving their own purposes in this world rather than his purpose for them. And then the, the, the last, uh, definition that I'll give you is that we are all, of course, lost and in dire need of spiritual salvation. So that is a brief overview of the impact of the fall on all human beings, no matter their gender identity. But for our study this morning, what we're going to be considering is how does the fall affect you as a woman, differently than it affects me as a man. And the Bible teaches both things. So there are some things, because I'm a man and you're a woman, that you and I share identically in terms of the impact of the fall on our lives. I was just as spiritually dead as you were. I wasn't any more alive because I was a man than you were because you were a woman before we were saved. I wasn't any less sinful. I wasn't any less blind. I didn't hate God any less. And I I certainly loved myself just as much as you loved yourself. And I was just as lost as you were. But there are other aspects of the fall that God intentionally targets the female gender. And there are certain aspects of the fall in which God targeted the male gender. And ongoing effects of the fall that only that gender experiences in those specific ways. And that's probably something in terms of studies of the fall that have been focused on less in Christian circles. There's been, in the history of theology, um, the last 2,000 years, there's been a lot of good attention paid to what does all humanity share in terms of the impact of the fall, maybe much less attention given to the focus of our study this morning. Uh, so what I want to do is I want to start by reading a passage. You're welcome to join me there if you want. Um, I'm going to actually read two passages from the New Testament, and then we're going to head back to the description of the fall in the book of Genesis. But first, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. And I would hope these two passages I'm going to read, I would hope you're very familiar with both of them. They're, they're two super key passages in relationship to Christian sanctification. Meaning once you are saved, how do we grow? How do we, how do we change for the better in an ongoing way for the rest of our life in this world? How do we become more like Christ? These two passages I'm going to read are the, the nuts and the bolts of that process. And we will come back to these two passages next month, Lord willing, in our redemption study. But I just want to read them from the aspect of the consideration of the ongoing effect of the fall, even for believers who have been saved. So the question here is, you've been saved. You belong to the Lord now. You've been given a new life in Christ. The Lord reached into you in the day of your salvation. He took your old heart out of you, the heart of stone, as he describes it, hard and resistant to him in his ways and purposes, and replaced it in a, in a spiritual heart transplant with a heart of flesh, soft and yielding to him. So 
that's a wonderful thing. I mean, it's, it's an awesome thing that God has given you a new heart. But does that mean that you never have to be considering or concerned about the ongoing effects of the fall from that day forward, from the day of your new birth forward? No, the whole story of your sanctification is your ongoing struggle with the ongoing effects of the fall in spite of the fact that you have a new heart. So we're going to look at that in a little bit more detail, but let's read these passages. First Ephesians chapter 4. And um, these are the, these two passages are the, the old man, new man passages in two of Paul's letters. So Ephesians 4 verse 22. I'll actually... Uh, I'll I'll start reading from verse 20 just so we can get the context. But it's 22 through 24 in particular. Paul writes, But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. And you might notice there's a, if you're reading the ESV like I am, there's a little notation number one next to the word self. You look at the bottom of the page. And you you notice that they're telling us that that word self could be translated man. The reason the ESV translators have changed the word man to the word self because the Greek word underneath the English word self there literally is the Greek word for man. Why have they translated it self instead of man? It's because they're, they're aware that people are very gender sensitive in our generation. Um, yeah. You know, to say the word man is almost offensive to women that are reading the Bible. Like, what about me? How come I'm not, you know, mentioned in the passage? Well, understand that Paul's using the word man here as it was used in that day and in that culture in a healthy way, which is man just representing humanity here. So this is not a gender specific passage. So as long as you understand that, he says, to put off your old self or your old man, which belongs to your, and this is a key phrase, your former manner of life. Your old self belonging to your former manner of life. What is a manner of life? It's, a, it's a, an, an accumulation of all of the habit patterns and all of the perspectives and attitudes that feed those habit patterns in the way that you used to live before you were saved. But Paul says here, you're to put off that old self, which is connected to that former manner of life, and is, and here he's defining its true nature, is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, meaning not just in the the surface level thoughts that you have, but the spirit of your mind, the deepest perspectives of your mind to to gain a new perspective, to be renewed in the uh, the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. All right, let's turn from there and read the parallel passage in the book of Colossians. It's essentially the same point, but slightly different wording. And that's in chapter 3 of Colossians. And the two key verses are verse 9 and 10. This whole section of chapter 3 is all focused on sanctification principles for the believer. But verse 9 Colossians 3 9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So the slightly different wording gains us a slightly different perspective in this version, in that you have this wording about the old man and old self with its practices. In the other passage, it was former manner of life. Here, here Paul just reduces that to a single word, practices, what I was calling 
the accumulation of all your habit patterns from your old life that are fed by old perspectives and old attitudes. And he says, and have put on the new self, which is, and, and I like this wording, being renewed. It's in a process of renewal, implying and, and very clearly indicating that it's not completely new yet. If something's being renewed, that means it's not completely new yet. So here's the circumstance for a Christian woman. And I'm, ta- I'm defining Christian as a born-again woman, a truly saved woman. She is, at a heart level, how new? Completely, entirely, 100% new. Because God himself, at the moment of her new birth, reached in, as we described before, and took out the heart of stone, the old heart, and replaced it with an entirely brand new heart. Now, when God puts in an entirely brand new heart, you don't need to look at that heart and say, well, it's not quite new enough yet. (laughs) If God put in a brand new heart, that means it's entirely 100% new. Does it need to be made any newer than it already is? But there is something in her that's not entirely new yet. What is that? Well, there's, there's an old mind combined with a new heart. And that old mind has, as I was just describing, perspectives of its own. It has attitudes of its own. And it produces behaviors of its own, which we tend to call habit patterns. And you accumulate all of that, and now you're taking a snapshot of this combination of factors in this Christian woman of a woman with an entirely 100% new heart, but her mind is still old. Her attitudes are still old. Her perspectives are still old. And therefore, many of her habit patterns are still old. So new heart, old perspectives, old attitudes, old behaviors, and now... Where do we go with that? Well, this is why Paul is emphasizing the need to be renewed. And how does he say that renewal will happen in this Colossians passage? Which is being renewed in knowledge. So what is the big change element that's introduced that will start renewing The old mind, which is perspectives and attitudes leading to behavior patterns, to match the new heart. That's what we call the process of sanctification. So again, Lord willing, we will camp there with a little bit more detail and and working out the implications of that next study uh, for our next breakfast. But I wanted to make sure you understood that Paul is wanting the churches to understand both in the Ephesians letter and the Colossians letter how important it is to recognize the ongoing influences of the fall. Because the old self, the old person, the old man, or you could in this specific case call it the old woman as it relates to you, is still being affected and influenced by the fall. To whatever degree your mind has not been 100% renewed, leading to 100% new perspectives, 100% new attitudes, and 100% new behavior, to that extent, you're still under the influence of the fall. Now, there will always be, no matter how much you grow in the, in the Lord, there will, there will always be, in this life, just this side of the second coming of Christ and just this side of the, of the great resurrection that we're going to experience when the Lord returns, there will always be biological aspects of the fall that we all have to deal with. You know, we get old, we get sick, we get tired, you know, things break down, things wear down. You know, all of those things are, are part of the ongoing effects of the fall and the resurrection is going to eliminate that once and for all, forever. But we're not focused so much on the biological, physical aspects of the fall. We're more focused on 
I'm going to mention one of them in, in just a moment, but we're more focused on those internal aspects of how our mind is still too much under the influence of the fall and too little yet under the influence of God's word, which is the source of the knowledge that will cause us to be renewed so that our mind matches our new heart. Our mind is renewed to match our new heart. All right, so I said we would then um, head over to Genesis. Let's do that now, Genesis chapter 3. So the reality is you've been born again. And having been born again, you are a new person in heart. And we are, we've already identified now what is new about you and what is old about you. And I've used this word habit to define the behaviors that our perspectives and attitudes produce. And the problem with habits, there's a, there's a good part and a bad part about a habit. And um, the good part is habits have a momentum of their own. And the bad part of habits is habits have a momentum of their own. What, what, that, what I'm trying to say without trying to confuse you is that if, if it happens to be a good habit that you're being um, carried along by, then it's a good thing because the momentum continues to carry you forward even if on any given moment of your life you're not in your best perspective and your best attitude. But the problem is there can be bad habits that have already been preformed before you ever came to know the Lord. And those bad habits have a momentum of their own and need to be broken. And since we're focused on the gender-specific aspects of the fall in this study, we need to be clear about what habits were set in motion for you as a woman that were not set in motion in the same way for me as a man. Now, there are other issues of the fall that relate to me as, as representing the male gender, but that's not the focus of our study this morning. I'm, I'm here to help you understand your own sanctification process a little bit more clearly. So I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 3. This is, we're not going to read the entire chapter, but it's the story of the fall. You're familiar with it. We're going to just look at verses 16, um, excuse me, 13 through 16, when um, Adam and Eve have already sinned. They've already taken the fruit from the tree that God had said, don't eat that fruit. And uh, they both have eaten of the fruit now. And as a result, they have both fallen into sin. And now the Lord shows up on the scene and he begins to ask questions but it's not because he's in ignorance. He's asking questions because he's beginning a process of holding them accountable for what's happened. And we're going to read at least uh, this portion of that, of that uh, interaction. Uh, we're starting here with the Lord's interaction with the serpent who had, who had uh, tempted uh, Eve, leading to the the uh, sequence of her eating the fruit and then giving the fruit to her husband who, were, who was with her and he eat, ate the fruit as well. Verse 13 of Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she does essentially what Adam had just done in the few verses right above this, which is when the Lord held her accountable, what did she do? She shifted the blame from herself to the serpent. And it is true that the serpent deceived her, but that doesn't excuse her. And that doesn't justify her. So she shifts the blame or attempts to. And of course, you know, sometimes in human relationships, we can successfully pull off a blame shift <laughs> and get away with it. Meaning the other person doesn't recognize that we're doing it. They're fooled by it. But when you try to do that with the Lord, there's just no success because he knows exactly what's going on. And so the Lord then does shift his attention to the serpent, but doesn't mean that he's, he's just let the woman off the hook here. We'll see that in a moment. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, that's, that's uh, hatred to the level of despising one another. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I, I don't have time to delve into all the details of verse 15, but it's a super important Old Testament verse. It's one of the most important verses in the whole Old Testament because it's the first messianic prophecy. It's even called by theologians the proto-evangel, meaning it's the very first mention of what we now call the gospel, the good news, which is it's describing the entry of Christ into the world at some unknown, at this point, unknown future point. Uh, this is the, the child of the woman who is going to who is going to crush the head of the serpent and all that the serpent, all the serpent's work and all, all the ways that he had ruined what was taking place in history. Then in verse 16, the Lord comes back to the woman. Remember, he had already started the conversation with her. She tried to shift the blame. So the Lord shifted to the serpent. Now he's coming back after dealing with the serpent. He's coming back to the woman and he says this. And we're going to, in verse 16, we're going to identify three gender-specific effects of the fall that don't apply to men. This is the Lord's judgment upon the female gender. And it applies that day and every day of history that's followed until today and will continue to apply until the second coming of Christ when Jesus will finish redeeming the female gender. All right? To the woman, this is the Lord speaking, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. All right, now I mentioned there are three elements, one of which actually goes all the way back to the first part of the conversation between the Lord and the woman. So we have to jump back for a moment to verse 13. The other two are identified in verse 16, just to be technically correct there. So this is the Lord describing the effects of the fall and the three gender-specific judgments that fall upon the woman as a result of the fall are these. She will be more susceptible to deception than the male gender. And I'll explain how that works in just a moment. Number two, she will experience multiplied pain in childbirth. Now this part is the one that I kind of hinted at earlier, which is, there is a biological judgment for the female gender. This is physical pain. This is not spiritual pain. A pain that no human male, in spite of what our current culture is telling you is possible, it's not. Men cannot bear children or give birth to them. No matter what, what our twisted culture is um, insisting these days. So, I have never experienced this. I can never experience it. Um, Most of you here have, and all of you are capable of experiencing a specific kind of and level of or or degree of pain uh, in the childbirth experience that is unique to the female gender. I'm not going to focus so much on that one because it's not so much having to do with your ongoing sanctification. Uh, We're going to focus on the other two, though, the susceptible to deception. And then the third one, which is uh, identified in verse 16, and it's in these words. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, that phrase, your desire shall be for your husband, could be interpreted in more than one way. It could be interpreted as a good thing. Like, you think of a a man or woman in in a... a deep, connected, intimate relationship of marriage. And you say, the Lord wants the the wife 
to have a desire for her husband. Is that from just if I said it that way, is that would that be a good thing or a bad thing? That'd be a good thing. This is not a good thing that the Lord is describing here, though. He's not describing a good desire. He's describing a desire that is a result of the fall. And it is an aspect of his judgment upon the female gender. This is what I can only describe. This is the best way I could come up, to descri- come up with to describe it. This is a contrary desire. So her desire shall be for her husband, but in a way contrary to her husband's desires, not complementary. Like there are some desires that my wife could have for me in my marriage relationship with her that I would view as a beneficial desire, a complementary desire. Like that's great that you have that desire in your heart. This one is not one of those. This is a contrary desire. And the result of that contrary desire is, and he shall rule over you. That's not good news for her when the Lord says those words. This is a, what we would call a consequential judgment. Now, I'm going to describe this in more detail in a few minutes, but why is this a consequential judgment? This goes back to the, the actual mechanics of the fall itself. Remember, she was the one that was interacting with the serpent. She was the one that was deceived by the serpent. She was the one that took the fruit from the tree first, and she's the one that handed it to her husband, and then he ate. Now, just to be clear, the way that I've all framed, I've framed all of that seems to indicate it's really her fault that this is going on. However, we learn later in the New Testament, in the clarity of the New Testament perspective of the fall, that the Lord ultimately holds the man more accountable than he does the woman. It's never referred to theologically in the New Testament as the fall of Eve. It's, it's identified as Adam's fall. It's Adam's failure. He's more responsible than she is because he was placed in a leadership relationship to her and a greater responsibility for guarding what the Lord had had established there in the garden in their lives together, Adam and Eve, for guarding their lives than he had made her responsible. But that doesn't mean she escapes scot-free and is allowed to just do whatever she wants in the garden because it's all, you know, if anything goes wrong here, it's all my husband's fault. She has her own responsibility to deal with and the Lord here is holding her accountable and then establishing new experiences in life, not just for her, but for all women that will ever follow her in history because of the lines that she crossed in this circumstance. So these are the three things, susceptible to deception, multiplied pain in childbirth, and contrary desire. We're going to, in the time we have left, just focus on the first and the third and leave out the the implications of the biological experience of, of childbirth pain. All right, so for the first one, susceptible to deception, we need to turn over to um, maybe one of the least popular New Testament verses, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I will say this, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging verse for everyone, no matter how much they love the Lord and no matter how much they love God's word. But there are many churches in our current generation and even many Bible scholars and even many pastors that have come to despise this verse and its implications because it does draw a clear gender distinction in the community of God's redeemed people. So in the community of God's redeemed people, there are some ways that we're all alike. We're all on the same level. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. For instance, I'll give an example. When we go to pray together as a community of people, and, it, and we're both praying for the same thing and asking the Lord for the same thing, do you think the Lord hears my prayer more than he hears your prayer only because I'm a man and you're a woman? And the answer to that is no. He doesn't listen to me more than you because I'm, I'm male and less 
than me because you're a female. The Lord hears all of his people, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, um, no matter what your racial distinction is. He hears us all. If we're born again, we're part of his flock. He hears us all equally when we cry out to him. But there are other ways like this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that identify a gender distinction. And it's important for us to not obliterate that just because the surrounding culture is so sensitive about it. So let's read from 1 Timothy 2. I'll start in verse 11. Paul, just to be clear, in this section is giving guidelines for redeemed church life. Meaning all of these people are born again. All of these people belong to the Lord. And now they're gathering together to worship the Lord and to serve him. And these are guidelines for their gatherings. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. Now, that last phrase, she is to remain quiet, does not mean absolutely quiet. It means quiet in the context of what he's just said. Quiet in relationship to who? When we gather together, someone needs to stand up and take the lead. When we gather together, someone needs to stand up and be able to teach God's word, representing the authority of God in that teaching. So who's going to do it? And in relationship to that question, let a woman remain quiet. Meaning she's to remain quiet as it, in terms of leadership in the church over the entire congregation. And she's to remain quiet in terms of authoritative teaching of doctrine, laying the doctrinal foundations, teaching the church what it should believe and how it should live according to the principles of God's revealed word. She is called to remain quiet in those two ways. Why? That's the question. Why? That doesn't seem, what's the word? That doesn't seem fair, does it? And the answer is, it's not fair. It is not fair. I'm quite willing to acknowledge that. And I think the Lord is not afraid of the word fair either. It's not fair. Because fair is all about what? Making sure everybody gets the same stuff. So it's dessert time after the family dinner. And the, someone places a, a pie on the table. And the pie is now available for the family to eat. What would be fair in terms of serving the pie? Everybody gets a slice. That's number one. But not just a slice, but the same size slice. It's not fair if I get a big, thick wedge of that pie and you just get a little sliver of that pie if you want more than just a little sliver. That's not fair. And, and that's certainly fine to, to understand the, the principle of fairness and apply it in certain contexts in life. Church life is not one of those contexts as it relates to leadership of the church and authoritative teaching in the church. Why? Because God says, I don't want to give the same slice to everybody. There's a reason behind it. The reason he goes on to say is, and he does give us an explanation. We see how verse 13, the very next verse starts, and it starts with this three-letter connector word in English, very important word, for, which tells us what? I'm about to say something that relates to what I've just said. I'm about to explain, which is exactly what the Lord is doing in verse, in verse 13. I'm about to explain something that I have just established as a principle. And why would he need to offer an explanation? Because Paul knows as soon as he says what he says in verses 11 and 12, it's going to raise questions in the minds and hearts of the people that are listening to him and receiving his teaching. And so as, a, as an effective and, and good teacher, he's anticipating their questions and he's anticipating even their possible objections to the principles that he's teaching. So what is the explanation? Four, he gives two, one of which only really applies to the point that we're focused on in our study. For 
Adam was formed first than Eve. So you know the story in the garden. We didn't read that portion, but when it came time to create man and woman, God did so intentionally differently. He created one before the other, and he created one out of the physical body of the other. And all of that was establishing an order in the relationship from that point forward. And that part of it points forward to a deep spiritual principle that goes beyond the fall that ultimately reveals something about the relationship in the spiritual context between Christ and the church. Meaning Christ comes before the church and the church was created out of Christ, so to speak. But the second reason does apply to our study, and this is verse 14, and this relates to the story of how the fall happened in the garden. And second reason why I do not allow women to take the lead, and when Paul says, I do not allow, some people like to look at that and say, okay, Paul is just giving his personal opinion. He was a, he was a male chauvinist pig. And he, you know, yes, he may have been born again, but he still had that old chauvinist attitude and perspective. Now, Paul is actually under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he's writing this letter. And he's writing God's perspective. He's representing God's thoughts on this issue. And so when he says in verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, he is establishing a biblical principle of the fall that continues beyond the fall itself and even continues into the redeemed community that we call the church. So something, Paul is essentially saying this, something happened in the garden that set in motion a pattern that continues to affect even born-again women to the extent that it's just better, it's wiser, and it's more honoring of God's principles for the men to take the lead in the church and to be the ones who become the authoritative teachers in the church. Now, that doesn't mean all the men do that. Even in our church, we have a relatively healthy church. Not all the men take the lead, and not all the men teach in an authoritative way. So there's also the factor of spiritual gifting and differences in assignment that we've talked many times about before. But we do have to tackle and absorb the significance of what verse 14 is telling us about the ongoing effects of the fall. And the best way I can describe it is what Paul is essentially saying is the female gender is more susceptible to deception than the male gender. As uncomfortable as that may sound to the ears of someone who is among the female gender. Now, does this mean, and just anticipating possible questions, that every man is more discerning than every woman? No. I know many women who are, by God's grace, much more discerning than many of the men that I know. And we're talking about spiritual discernment here. But there is an inherent weakness in the female makeup in its ongoing effects from the moment of the fall forward that makes my wife more susceptible to deception than I am. Doesn't mean I can't be deceived. I have been, and I probably will be again in the future. But I will tell you this, I'm not being deceived right now in describing this principle to you because this is a true and biblical principle. So in that awareness, that should, that should add a new level of consideration to your own participation in your own sanctification. And that is just being aware that I have a weakness in this area. One of the greatest things I ever learned about the Lord's desire to sanctify me is pay attention to your strong points and pay attention to your own weak points and be honest about both. Because when the enemy attacks you, he's not wise, but he is smart. When the enemy attacks you, where is he going to tend to attack you? At your strongest points or at your weakest points. And of course, any military tactician is going to want to attack the enemy at their weakest points. 
My wife and I, you know, as a hobby and as an activity that we share together, we go and play at a local ping pong club. And one of the things, one of the first principles you learn if you're in a competition like ping pong and you're, you're hitting the ball to someone on the other side of the table is don't hit it where they want it and the way, don't give them the kind of return that they want, where they're strongest, where they can use their best weapon. Hit it where they don't want it to be and hit it in the way that they struggle to hit it back. It's easier to win that way. So the enemy will attack your weakest point. It helps to understand this is a weak point for me compared to other areas that may be a strength of mine. All right, now let's talk about the third one, which is, and again, we're skipping over the multiplied pain in childbirth, and we're focused on the principle of what I'm calling contrary desires. This is from the wording in Genesis 3 again. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So what desire? I said there were some beneficial desires where that could be a good thing if you interpreted it, wanted it to interpret it that way. But that this is the Genesis passage is a passage describing a judgment of the Lord. And it's not a beneficial thing. It's not a preferable thing. The Lord is actually pronouncing judgment on her. And so the the desire that she has is what we can rightly call a sinful desire. So what kind of sinful desire might she have? And I just want to, I want to summarize it. And then I'm going to give you four passages of scripture to help us understand this more clearly. The desire here is the desire of the woman to be in charge in whatever context is at issue. Could be in charge of the marriage. Have you ever known a woman that was more in charge of her marriage than the man was in that marriage? Now, not every marriage is like that, but there are marriages like that. Have you ever known a circumstance where a woman would desire to be more in charge of the children than the man is in charge of the children, the husband is in charge? Or it could be in the context of church, for instance, There are some churches that are led by women. They shouldn't be if we're following biblical patterns of church life, but there are some that are. There are some where the pastor is a woman or or one of the pastors is a woman, that kind of thing. So the desire here is a contrary desire. It's contrary not just to the husband, but it's contrary to the Lord. It's contrary to the Lord's principles. It's contrary to the Lord's patterns. She has a desire in her heart, and what's implied in the Genesis 3 passage is that desire is already there because of the fall. She doesn't have to work it up. The desire is in her because of the fall. Now, you've been born again. I emphasized this earlier. And when you were born again, God reached into your heart and took your old heart out. That means that whatever was in your heart in relationship to this desire has been removed. So when your heart changes, God put in a new heart. He gave you a new motivation, a new inclination, a new desire. But the problem for you, and this is the problem for all of us in terms of our relationship to the ongoing effects of the fall, is that while our old heart was in us, And it's a different amount of time for each one of us. I was saved when I was 24 years old. So for me, I had 24 years of living life with an old heart. And now I'm much older. I'm 67 years old. And you would think, oh, all of that's gone now. Oh, I only wish that all of that was gone. So I have a new heart, but I'm still 40-something years after being born again, 43 years after being born again, I'm still dealing with the momentum of habits based upon perspectives and attitudes that were practiced for the first 24 years of my life. Now, because I'm 43 years into this process that we call sanctification, I should be on the high side of that by now. And I believe I am. But That's only if I have spent those 43 years renewing my my mind in knowledge, as the Colossian passage emphasized. Spending the appropriate amount of time 
reading God's word, studying God's word, meditating on God's word, allowing God's word to soak into my mind and my heart and really have its intended effect and impact on my perspectives now and my attitudes now and therefore my new behaviors that are formed out of that. All right, so let me, uh, I told you I'd take you to some passages. You see those in your notes. Let's go first to Proverbs. And what we're going to read are some gender-specific passages that are focused on um, the female gender, and they are describing ongoing effects of the fall. And these passages I've chosen, the three in Proverbs, have everything to do with what Moses, by the Spirit of God, was describing in Genesis chapter 3, when he said, her desire shall be for her husband, but he will rule over her. What we're calling that, or what I'm wanting to describe that as, is what we would call a a power struggle between male and female. Who's really in charge? And these three passages speak to that issue. I am not assuming, as you're listening to me read these passages today, that this is your current story. I'm assuming something better for you because you are redeemed and you have been participating in your own sanctification. But I'm reading them so that you would be aware of the natural tendency of the ongoing effects of the fall, how it would continue to affect you if you're not paying close attention to that ongoing influence and overcoming and overwhelming that influence by the new influences as your mind is renewed in knowledge in your relationship to God's word. So Genesis chapter, uh, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 19, we'll read verse 13. A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Now, this is a word picture, and I'm just looking at part B of verse 13, uh, the wife's uh, description here. It doesn't mean that every wife is like this, but the wife that is is like this because of the fall. That's why she's like this. And her behavior here, which is being fed by a contrary perspective and a contrary attitude leading to contrary behaviors. Her behavior here is being described with a wonderful, interesting word picture, continual dripping of rain. Now, can that, can that be a positive word picture? It could in a different context. Let's say you were in a drought, living in a, in a land that had not had rain for a year and all the the growth in the world around you was shriveling up and dying because of the lack of rain and suddenly it starts to rain and there's a continual dripping of rain is that a good thing absolutely good thing that's not the picture here this is a rain that won't stop so when does a rain which is normally beneficial shift from a good thing to a bad thing In the days of Noah, continual dripping of rain was not exactly a blessing, was it? No. So it all depends on how long does it drip. (laughs) How how continual is continual? This is a, it never stops. And how many of you ever heard of, uh, we don't talk about this as much anymore, but in the days when I was growing up, I remember, you know, uh, with spy novels and stuff like that that I would read, they would talk about Chinese water torture. You ever heard of that? Which was, they would strap someone down and then just put a drip of water where a drip would drip on their forehead. Not a, not a, not a full-on you know, flow of water, just a drip on their forehead. And apparently there was supposed to be something, I of course have never experienced it, so I can't really speak to it from an experience standpoint, but apparently something about this this drop hitting the forehead and never stopping over days that would eventually drive the person crazy if they didn't give the information to the torturers that they were supposed to give. That's kind of the image here of a a dripping that doesn't stop. And and, uh, understand the word picture. The wife is not actually pouring water on her husband in this verse. 
So what is the drip? Yeah, her drip is her words. A certain kind of words that become torturous to the husband. At a certain point, it just because it just never stops. All right, let's look at the next one. Chapter 21 of Proverbs. And we'll look at verse 9. It says, It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Okay, the word quarrelsome here, similar to the word uh, quarreling from the, the previous verse. And the word quarrelsome means um, to be bitterly angry in your attitude. Bitterly angry. So it's an ad, a deep a deep wrong attitude of heart that flares up in anger but leaning to angry words that are spoken um, in this continuing way in the relationship. And here, the verse says, it's better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Here it's actually counseling the husband, but it's counseling the husband in the context of living with a wife who is, whose attitude and perspective and therefore behavior is more driven by the fall than it is by redemption. And the, the counsel to the husband is what? I, isolate yourself. Isolate yourself. It's better. It's never good. I mean, if, someone comes, if a couple comes to me for marriage counseling, it's never a good thing for me to say, you guys just need to get away from each other. I mean, that's not a healthy situation. A healthy marriage, you're supposed to enjoy each other's company and be blessed and benefited from each other's company. Here the Lord is saying, if you're in this circumstance, it's better for you to go live in the corner of the what? Housetop. I don't know if you're super familiar with the, the architectural designs of that ancient culture, but houses in those days all had flat roofs. And the roof was like a back porch where the family would go during the heat of the summer and they'd be, you know, they'd be in the house during the heat of the summer, but then on, in the cool of the day, they would go up on the, up on the rooftop. They'd eat their meals there, sometimes even sleep up there. But here, the, the counsel being given to the husband is, look, it'd be better if your wife is in the house for you to just go and, and make yourself a little living space in the corner of your rooftop. Go live on your back porch rather than live in the house with a wife characterized by being more under the influence of the fall in this bitterly angry, quarrelsome kind of way. All right, the third passage, and all of these are essentially saying the same principle, is also in chapter 21, verse 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Now, this is a progressive principle because you start out in the house with her and then her behavior drives you from the house to the rooftop and you're in the corner of the rooftop now and then her behavior doesn't stop. Apparently she's followed you up onto the rooftop <laughs> and continuing her pattern. And now what is the counsel? Leave and go find a place in the desert. The desert is not the kind of place that you would normally want to live. It's harsh environment. It's, it's not uh, paradise. It's not beneficial living circumstances, but it's better to live in the worst kind of physical circumstances than you can that you can imagine than it would be to live in a close relationship with someone who is this, to this extent, still under the influences of the fall. Now, we'll end with this passage in James in which he describes for us the essence of what's going on when there's this quarrelsome thing that's happening. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This is a helpful explanation given to us. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder 
you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And he goes on to say, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The point he's making here is that quarrels are always generated from a self-loving, self-focused, self-concerned heart perspective. And that's what the fall does to us. It makes us self-lovers, remember, and God-haters. And as it relates to the female gender, there is a continuing problem for you, a temptation for you. And the problem and temptation is the Lord himself has said, he's placed a boundary around you and he said, you have a desire to be in charge, but you're not going to be in charge. And so if you desire to be in charge and you're not in charge, that makes you more susceptible to a quarrelsome attitude and perspective and therefore behavior. So as a woman who now has a new heart, along with all of that, thank God the Lord has changed your heart. He's given you a new attitude down deep inside at the deepest level, a new perspective down deep at the deepest level. He's given you a new desire, a new, a new motivation, a new inclination. And yet there are still the momentums of the old habits. So you have to conscientiously have your mind renewed with the principles of who God wants you to be now in Christ and overcome by concerted, continuing, diligent, and disciplined efforts to overcome the momentum of that influence of the fall. And that will be the focus of our study next time as we're looking at the woman redeemed. So for application, I would just ask you in the next couple of months before our next meeting, to consider how the fall has specifically affected his, the Lord's fourfold design for you. Designed to bear God's image, designed to have dominion over his creation, designed to be a godly companion to your husband, and designed to be a godly helper to your husband, and how these things that we focused on today, susceptibility to deception and contrary desires for leadership, how they affect those four designs, but you are called to overcome them by the grace of an ever-renewed mind as it matches your renewed heart. All right? God bless you this morning.